0: If you have your Bible, uh, please open it uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, Since we, uh, again, in case you came in a little late, let me just repeat. uh, The leadership here at the church has uh, decided that at least once a quarter uh, that we will Uh, permit the children to remain in the service while we observe the Lord's supper. Uh, We typically have a children's church and in the past they have been dismissed prior to the Lord's Supper uh, prior to the message time and we just were discussing this believed it was very important uh, for the children to be uh, exposed to the observance of the Lord's Supper because of its wonderful meaning and symbolism of course, to give those children that know the Lord Jesus an opportunity to actually uh, participate and observe. And for those children that have not yet made decisions for Christ, again, uh, hopefully this will evoke a lot of questions on their part to their parent or parents. And uh, I was, you know, even uh, the Passover observance we were talking about in the Old Testament, it talks about when your children ask you, What does this mean? you have this wonderful opportunity uh, to share uh, God's grace. In God's work. So, with the children in, let me just very briefly, uh, prior to actually observe, observing the Lord's Supper, I'm just going to remind us of the five fundamental purposes that, uh, in observing the Lord's Supper. Five biblical purposes in observing the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me begin reading verse 23. The Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, took what? The bread. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, referring to death. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait. Or that could be translated... Uh, serve one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. And then over in chapter 10, just a couple of verses, verses 16 and 17, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So what are the five fundamental purposes in observing the Lord's Supper? The first one, boys and girls, and I want to address our children this morning since they are remaining with us. The first purpose, boys and girls, of the Lord's Supper is to remember, to remember who Jesus is and what Jesus did for you through his death, burial, and resurrection, but uh, I think all of you boys and girls, uh, through your Sunday school classes, uh, through children's worship, you understand uh, that we're all sinners. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've done those things in our lives that does not make God happy, that makes Jesus uh, sad. And the Bible tells us uh, there's a payment uh, for that sin, for those wrongdoings. And that payment, says, for the wages of sin is, what does it say, church body? Death. And death there refers to separation. A separation from God, not only in this life, but throughout all eternity. So the reason Jesus came, boys and girls, to the world was so that he could take that penalty of sin and he could uh, take the punishment that we deserve. Let me just simply explain it this way. Uh, Let's say, boys and girls, that this this book uh, represents your life, and uh, uh, that front cover is your birth certificate, that day when you were born, and uh, let's say that back cover is, represents the day you will die. And uh, everything here in between is a, is a record book of your life, uh, of uh, everything you've done, everything you've thought, uh, the things you did that you shouldn't have done, things that you Didn't do that you should have done. Uh, And boys and girls, that's our problem. Uh, Our sin, if if this hand represents my life and this hand represents God, what's between me and God? My sin. And that separates me from God. And so what Jesus did when he came into the world, the Bible says my sin, your sin, boys and girls, was what? laid on Jesus. He took the punishment we deserve, and that's why the Bible says he was pierced, or the nails were put in his hands and his feet because of what we had done, because of our sin. He was crushed for our iniquity, and so because he took the punishment we deserve, since he took our judgment for us, we no longer have to be judged by God, but we can know his forgiveness And we can be received by the Father to all those who put their trust, who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So, boys and girls, one of the main purposes of the Lord's Supper is to remember. We come to this time to remember who Jesus is, what He did for us in dying for our sins, and in raising from the dead, and in offering uh, the gift of forgiveness to all who will invite Him in to take control of their lives, and, uh, and to follow him. The second main purpose of the Lord's Supper, boys and girls, is not just a time to remember what Jesus did in the past, but also to redirect our focus uh, to the future and look ahead to what Jesus is going to do for us when he comes back. And, boys and girls, the reason that we look forward to Jesus coming back is, I, I think, two reasons. Number one, it gives us hope. It gives me strength for today. Knowing that as I deal with difficulty and struggle and problems, uh, one day that's going to come to an end. One day Jesus is going to return and there will be no more struggle with sin. There will be no more problems or adversity, uh, but I'll enjoy my uh, home in heaven uh, with him. But I think another uh, reason we're to redirect our focus is knowing that one day we're going to stand face to face to Jesus, boys and girls. And we're going to give an account of how we lived our lives for Jesus as believers. And, of course, if you have invited Jesus into your life to forgive you of your sins and take control of your life, you're now to live your life as a big thank you to God, uh, to express your appreciation and your love for God by obeying Him and by honoring Him. And so one day, every one of us as believers will stand face to face with Jesus. And when we come to that day, that will determine uh, our reward in heaven or our loss of reward in heaven. So we're to remember what Jesus did for us in the past. But we're also to redirect our focus to the future and the hope that we have in his return. And then, boys and girls, the third purpose for the Lord's Supper is that we're, when we come and celebrate, we're to refresh ourselves in the presence of God. In other words, Jesus is here. He's the host of the table. That's why 1 Corinthians 10 says, uh, when we partake in the bread, and the, it's a sharing in Jesus, a participation in Jesus. So I'm not only looking back to what Jesus did for me when he died on the cross and rose again, I'm not just looking forward, boys and girls, to that he's going to return one day for me, and that gives me motivation and strength to live for him today. But I'm so thankful that right now he's with me. And he's in my heart. And I can rely on Jesus in my struggles and in my difficulties. And uh, that's the same wonderful privilege that you have. And then, boys and girls, the fourth purpose of the Lord's Supper is this is a very, very serious time. Because Jesus went to the cross and he suffered and he was tortured, and he died for our sins, as we noted earlier, as our sins were placed on him. So it's very difficult to participate in the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, if, if you're engaging in sin in your life. Uh, that's like making light of what Jesus did. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 11 it says, Whenever you partake of the Lord's Supper, you're to examine yourself. You want to make sure that there's nothing between you and God, that there's nothing between you and another person that you have not sought to make right as far as it is possible with you. In other words, that you have a clear conscience before God. And that's what God asks. Uh, as sinners on this side of eternity, even after we're saved, we still have ups and downs and we still make mistakes and we still fail, we fall into sin. Uh, the Lord still loves us when that happens, but he does want us to be honest about that and not to try to hide it and cover that up, but to say, I'm sorry. I blew it. I was wrong, Jesus. Forgive me for failing. Forgive me for, for my sin, and I thank you uh, for your forgiveness that you secured for me on the cross. And then, boys and girls, the fifth and the last reason in observing the Lord's Supper is uh, to encourage one another. Uh, One of the uh, very important aspects of the Lord's Supper that's often neglected in our churches today is that this is a time to minister to one another. It's a time to uh, look at your friends that might be hurting or struggling, uh, to encourage them or to pray for them and to uh, serve uh, one another. So uh, we're so thankful to have all of you boys and girls in the service uh, with us today. And I I pray, and maybe uh, Jonathan uh, can uh, give you a little test uh, this morning when you do go to, Lord's, uh, to the Children's Church about those five purposes, and I see if we can remember them one more time. The first purpose is what? To remember who Jesus is and what he did for us. We look back to the one, his death, burial, and resurrection. The second purpose is to look what? forward, to redirect our focus to his coming. He's going to come back. And that gives me strength and motivation to live for him today. The third purpose is that He's here and I can refresh myself in His presence. He's in my heart. And so as we sang about leaning on the everlasting arms earlier, I can lean on Him. I can can trust Him to help me manage the problems and the adversity that I'm dealing with uh, in life. And then the fourth reason is what? This is a very serious time. So we're to examine ourselves in the light of God's holiness. To make sure that as we observe this time, there's nothing between me and God, nothing between me and another uh, person. Because if I don't confess that and give that to God and and trust His cleansing power, then He says He will be forced to what? Discipline me, give me that spanking. And boys and girls, you know, spankings aren't pleasant, they're painful. And God, just like your parents, they have no, we have no joy in disciplining our children. It's necessary uh, because we want you to grow up to be everything God wants you to be. But that's not our desire. And, and God's desire is not to discipline his children. But he, his love is tough enough. When he has to, he will. He would prefer us to be honest and, uh, and to be uh, truthful about our struggles and our failures. And then fifth, boys and girls, to love one another, uh, to serve Uh, one another so let me ask our uh, elders and our deacons to go ahead and uh, take their places Uh, i'm going to pray and then after i pray uh, we'll begin but i'm going to let them go ahead and get ready and again uh, parents uh, if your child knows the lord jesus christ if he's uh, invited him in as their savior and lord they're more than welcome to participate If not, your child is welcome to walk up with you. But again, it would just uh, be an opportunity for them to observe. And and again, it's going to evoke questions, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. It gives you an opportunity to share Jesus uh, uh, with them. Well, of course, as I read a moment ago, we're we're told that after uh, Jesus took the bread and gave thanks, He broke it, and He said, this is my body, what? For you. I always have believed two of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible, for you. Everything Jesus did, he did it for you. And that's why we rejoice uh, this morning. And then, of course, uh, not only the bread that represents his body that he sacrificed on the cross, but the juice represents his blood uh, that was shed on the cross as payment for our sin to take the penalty of our sin, to take the judgment for us so that we would not have to be judged and we could know God's forgiveness. Uh, Boys and girls, the simplest way I know how to put it, and I've shared this with your parents many, many times. When Jesus was on the cross, boys and girls, God the Father treated him just like he had lived our sinful lives. He took the punishment. He took the judgment we deserve so that today God the Father could treat us just like we had lived Christ's sinless life. And that's the heart of the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So let me pray, and then after I pray, we can begin uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, We have deacons stationed at uh, each uh, section of pews. They will Uh, alert you when you're to come down and you just come down the one side go back the other we also have men in the balcony that will be serving and of course i think uh, most of you are aware of the fact that if we have any that uh, are not physically able to come down if you would just simply raise your hand we have a couple of men that will bring the elements to you and serve you uh, at your pew so bow with me in prayer father thank you for this wonderful wonderful opportunity with our boys and girls to observe uh, the Lord's Supper. And we want to thank you, Jesus, uh, for offering yourself as a sacrifice uh, for our sins and taking our discipline, taking our punishment, taking our spanking for us. Um, And thank you for your blood uh, that forgives, that cleanses us of our sin because that blood... Uh, speaks of your death and the payment that was made for our sin that was accepted by the Father uh, on our behalf. So Lord, as we come to partake now, uh, give us each and every one hearts to remember as we focus on who Jesus is, what he did for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, give us hearts not only to look back but to look forward to that Jesus that came to die and be buried in Rose in. He's coming back. And he will be victorious. And his glory will fill the earth. And I pray that would give us strength and motivation to live today. And then, Father, as we celebrate, uh, Lord, let us experience you. Let us encounter you. Your grace in our weakness, uh, your uh, strength, uh, giving us that ability. Uh, to live a life pleasing to you and then father search our hearts lord is there anything right now between any one of us and you that we need to acknowledge confess and forsake is there anything between us and another person we need to acknowledge and at our earliest opportunity to seek every effort to build a bridge as far as it's possible with us And then, Lord, uh, let us love one another. Let us be tender and sensitive to one another's needs. So again, thank you for your love. We do exalt you as Lord of our lives. And in light of what we have just experienced, in light of what we have just celebrated, uh, we are truly motivated Uh, by your mercies that were displayed for us uh, through your death on the cross, now to present our lives to you, uh, to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. And Lord, I thank you that they're only holy and acceptable because we lay those sacrifices on the altar of the cross, that cross that was sanctified, set apart, by the blood of Jesus and as we lay our lives on that sanctified altar thank you that you receive our sacrifice and I pray now you would give us the grace you would give us the empowerment not to be squeezed into the mold of this world that we would not adopt this world's way of thinking Uh, this world's values and attitudes character or conduct but as your people we would be transformed through the renewal of our mind through your power at work in us that we would prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God And Lord, I thank you, as your scripture tells us, uh, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So we acknowledge that your purpose in dying for us is that we would now no longer live for ourselves, but live for you. And again, Lord, we look to you to give us the grace to do so. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, at this time, we will dismiss our children uh, for their... kids pray zone if we have guests and you have uh, boys and girls they are more than welcome to uh, participate it's uh, for kindergarten through third grade well we're just going to make the transition now right into the uh, into the message We are, in case you are visiting, we are presently in a study of the New Testament book of Philippians, which has taken us into chapter 2. And I hope you did pick up a copy of the uh, sermon notes. You'll see that the focus in chapter 2 is on the mind or the attitude of Christ, which is the key to church unity. And last Sunday, uh, we actually spent most of our time uh, simply laying a foundation for our study of chapter 2. And we raised the question, well, why is love? Why is unity so important in the church? And we discovered that the New Testament gives a very pointed and a very, very clear answer. And I could... uh, sum uh, sum up uh, last Sunday's message in about three sentences. And it's simply this, expressing genuine love for one another. A love that's greater than our differences. A love that unites us in our diversity. That kind of love is the primary means that God has given to the church To demonstrate to unbelievers the reality of Christ. That's it. So it's our love for one another. The unity that we express in the midst of diversity. it's, It's a tool. It's the means God has given us to demonstrate to unbelievers the reality of Jesus. To demonstrate the authenticity of our Christianity. And so what's the flip side? If we're not loving one another, if we're not knowing unity, if we're knowing division within the body of Christ, we give the world the reason to say, I don't believe you, and I don't believe your message. Because why should I, when I don't see it lived out in your life? A church united by the love of Christ is the only thing that will convince a lost world about the truth of Christ. Therefore, the advance of the gospel of Christ is going to rise or fall on how we relate to one another right here in the church family. Now, we've already seen in our study uh, of the book of Philippians just how special uh, the church at Philippi was to Paul. And why? Why? Because like no other church, I mean, he put this church up on a, on a pedestal. He says, There's, there hadn't been another church that I've ever ministered, uh, birthed or, or ministered to that has participated with me like this church in the advance of the gospel. But now, disunity in the church of Philippi threatened to halt the advance. And there are two women in the church, we're told in chapter 4, that were at odds with one another. In chapter 4, verse 2, they are identified as Euodia and Syntica. Now, we're not told what the issue was that created the disharmony. But apparently, as so often and so tragically happens, people were picking sides. And later in chapter 2, Paul refers to all this grumbling and disputing that's going on within the church. And Paul knew... If harmony in the church was not restored, they would not only be powerless to face persecution that they were encountering, but they would also be ineffective in promoting the gospel because they would damage the credibility of their witness. United they stand, divided they fall, and that's true of you and I today. Look at the introduction in your sermon notes Uh, The Philippian church was facing external opposition, but they were also struggling with internal disunity, which, as we've mentioned, threatened the credibility of their witness and effectiveness to advance the gospel. And it's these struggles which provide the basis for Paul's exhortation at the end of chapter 1. right before we go into chapter 2, look at verses 27 and 28. He said, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? It means to live a life that would promote the gospel, that would put it on display. Well, how do we do that? Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving, notice, together for the faith of the gospel and in no way alarmed by your opponents. Now, notice the emphasis on all the church members having one mind, or one attitude. We're not talking about external uniformity. In uh, in practices and uh, rituals and uh, all preferences. But we are talking about a, a, a unity that comes about internally. As we all possess the same mind and attitude of Christ. Now as we move into chapter 2. Here's the key. As we move into chapter 2. Paul explains that the one mind. The one attitude. The only thing that's adequate. To maintain unity in the church, you see in your notes, you see in your notes, five points, five points uh, that explain how we are to express the mind of Christ to one another. Now last Sunday, if you were here, I gave you all five points. Uh, if you brought your notes from you last, you already have this filled in, but we we didn't really have time to examine uh, the five points, so I want to go back through them and just spend a little more time uh Opening this up, uh, just explaining exactly uh, its application and how we express the mind of Christ. The first point, I'll I'll spend very little time on this because we did spend uh, a fair amount of time on this first point. The mind of Christ is first sharing with one another the blessings of Christ. The mind of Christ is sharing with one another the blessings of Christ. Look at verses 1 and 2. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete, Paul says, by being of the same mind. There's that thought again. Maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. And the key to understanding these two uh, verses is circle every place you see the word if. If. That's not the best translation from the Greek text. That would better be translated since. In other words, it would better read this way since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is the fellowship of the Spirit, since we have experienced affection and compassion through Christ. Then he says, Will you make my joy complete by you demonstrating? That same thing to what? To one another. That's what's being said there. In other words, by virtue of the fact that you have come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's, that's your experience. You've known the encouragement of Christ in your life. You've known the consolation of his love. You've known the fellowship of the Spirit. You've known affection and compassion. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, as a believer, If this is what you have received from Jesus, and you've received that, what, unconditionally, warts and all, well, then you are a debtor to what? Give that to others within the body of Christ. What you receive, you are to give to others. Now, let's move on. Look at the second, the second point on how to express the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is thinking about one another with the attitude of Christ. Thinking about one another with the attitude of Christ. Look at verses 3 and 5. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another more important than himself. Have this attitude or this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He finally identifies what that one mind is that produces unity. It's the mind of Christ, and it's expressed beautifully here in verse 3. And there are two key words you want to circle in your notes. The little word regard and the little word important. Paul is saying this is the mind of Christ. It says you don't do anything out of a self-centered motivation. You don't do anything out of empty conceit. You don't do anything to promote yourself, to put yourself up on a pedestal, to receive the applause of others. But he says you're to follow the example of Christ. You're to... Follow the mind, the attitude of Jesus, that humility of mind. That would better read lowliness of mind, who in lowliness of mind regarded what? Others is more important than himself. The fascinating thing about those two little words, regard and important, in the Greek text, they were used as military terms. He expresses military terms, terms of duty to express the heart of Christ's mind. Of Christ's love. And what's going to promote unity. The little word regard. If you were to literally translate it from the Greek. Would be to to let lead. Or to let command. The word important. If you were to literally translate it. Would mean your your commander in chief. So you would read that. With lowliness of mind. I'm to let lead. I'm to let command. In my thoughts. In relationship to you. That you are my superior. And if you are my superior, therefore I am what in relationship to you? A servant. And that's it. Because that, as we're going to see, is the very heart of Christ's attitude and mind and the very essence of His nature and what motivates Him to be who and what He is. So, in the same way, that's how I'm to live. Now, Here's the application. Why would Paul be inspired by the Holy Spirit to use military terms, terms of duty, to express the heart of love? And I think the answer is pretty obvious. Love is a deliberate decision To invest in the life of another person that will often run contrary to your feelings. That's reality. Love, the very essence of love, it's a decision. It's a very deliberate decision to invest in the life of another person that often is going to run contrary to my feelings. It amazes me that when Jesus taught on love, he never put it on the feeling of emotions and feelings. It's not that there's not an emotional and feeling element, but he says, first and foremost, it's an action that you take. For example, let's do it with just several. He says, if you have somebody who hates you, are you to wait till you feel all giddy and wonderful about them to reach out to them? No, he says, if you have somebody who hates you, he says, you are to what? Do good. It's concrete. they are either doing it or you're not doing it. It has nothing to do with your feelings. Or how about bless those who curse you. He says if you have someone who is using their tongue to slander you, he says you are not to be overcome with evil. You're to overcome evil with good by what? Blessing them. They use their mouth to curse you. You use your mouth to bless them. If nothing else, to get on your knees and to pray for them out of love. How about forgive those who wrong you? Are you always going to feel like forgiving after you've been deeply hurt, after you've been deeply wounded or rejected? No, it's a deliberate decision that you make or love your enemies. An enemy, the Bible defines as someone who's out to destroy you. And Jesus said you're to love your enemies has nothing to do with your feelings, and to love means you're to find the need that they have, and you're to meet that need. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, another great example. The love chapter, verses 4 through 8, gives this wonderful description of love. Love is long-suffering, and it's kind. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't take into account wrong suffering It goes on and on and on and on. And in our English Bible, they all read as adjectives, as if he is describing what love is like. In the Greek text, every one of them are verbs. Action words. In other words, you learn love what through the practice of love. Now, let me put this together for you. What this is saying is, Jesus went to the cross for you and I, which was a deliberate decision to invest in us that went contrary to his feelings, right? Look at the Garden of Gethsemane. He is sweating drops of blood. The stress is so great. It talks about how he was terrorized, he was filled with terror, literally paralyzed with fear, with the notion of going to the cross and being our sin bearer, and what he feared most was not the physical aspect of it, it was the spiritual, that he would be separated from his Father, that on those moments in the cross, he would become the target of his father's wrath, of his father's judgment, because he was taking my punishment, he was taking your punishment. And he said, Father, Father, if there's any way, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, may it be so. But did he stop there? He said, nevertheless, what? Not my, what, will be done, but thine be done. And so the essence of love is, I look at my Savior, as we just celebrate in the Lord's Supper, and I say, He is worthy of me following in his footsteps. And even if I don't feel like loving this person out of obedience to him, I invest. I make that decision to love. Look at the third, look at the third expression of the mind. The mind of Christ is looking at one another with the eyes of Christ. It's not only thinking about one another with the attitude of Christ, but it's looking at one another with the eyes of Christ. Look at verse four. Do not merely look out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Do not merely look out for your own interest but also for the interest of others. Circle the, the, that phrase look out." That's the key phrase. I don't know if you have your Bible open, but let me that's an interesting word. Scopio in the Greek text, this same word, Same identical word is found in chapter 3, verse 14. That verse reads, Paul says, I press on toward the goal, G-O-A-L, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The word that's translated goal, G-O-A-L, is the identical same word that's translated look in 2.14. You say, well, why would in one place it be translated look, the other place goal? Because it's it's a Greek word that's full of meaning. Very difficult to to, uh, fully translate it into the English. And let me tell you what what the essence of the word means. The word means that some object or some person has totally captured my attention. I mean, I'm just... I'm just riveted on this one thing, oblivious of everything else. But not only that, not only am I focused on this one person or this one object, whatever it might be, but my goal in life is to apprehend this object and make it mine. That's what the word means. Now you can easily understand why Paul used this word in chapter 3, talking about his relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he did for me, my focus is on him. I'm oblivious of everything and everything. He is my one desire. He is my one passion and pursuit. And my goal in life is to embrace Jesus, apprehend Jesus, and make him my own, become like him. Knowing, the, as he talks about in that chapter, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death, knowing the power of the resurrection... He says, oh, that I might know him. That's where he talks about, I've counted all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Oh, more than that, I count everything else like rubbish, garbage in comparison to knowing Jesus. But in chapter 2, he's not talking about his relationship with Jesus. He's talking about us relating to one another. And he says the way Andy Merritt should live his life within the church family, the way you should live your life within the church family, is where I'm not looking out for my interest. I'm not looking out to what's going to be best for me, what's to my advantage. The issue is what's your best interest, this church family, the body of Christ, the cause of Jesus Christ. Just a beautiful, beautiful thought. So the mind of Christ, it's not only about thinking about one another with the attitude of Christ, but it's looking at one another in the eyes of Christ. And Christ never looked at a person to take advantage of them, to exploit them, to use them for his selfish ends. He always looked at people, people as objects to love. Well, he put their interests before his own. And that's the way you and I are to live within the body of Christ. Look at the fourth truth about the mind of Christ The mind of Christ is embracing one another with the arms of Christ. It's embracing one another with the arms of Christ. Look at verses 6 and 7. Beautiful, beautiful verses. Talking about Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Three key words I want you to circle. Uh, the word form, he was existed in the form of God. Circle grasp, he did not equ- uh, regard equality with God, I think to be grasped, and then emptied. He emptied himself. The word form is morphe in the Greek text. Now, we see that word form, and we think outward shape. But that's the furthest thing from what it means in the Greek text. The word morphe literally means the internal essence and nature of something and what this is saying is it's, it's probably the clearest statement in all the bible that jesus is god he was not a created being he is the eternal god there's god the father and if there's an eternal father there's an eternal what there's an eternal son And the Bible is very clear. Yes, He is God. He's the very creator of this universe, the creator of this earth, the creator of you and I. It's through Him that all things are held together. So that word form means that He's God. And then that word grasp is harpognon in the Greek text. Fascinating word. It means to grab something, to to, to seize something, to grab... For the purpose of using it for your advantage. So notice what it's saying. It says, although Jesus was God, this is an incredible statement, he never used his deity for his own advantage. Although he had all power, all authority, he never once uses that power or authority for his own advantage, but for your good, for your benefit. Folks, that's so unlike us. Probably the greatest test in human experience of character is not when things are going bad, but when you got it all. And you got all power and authority because power corrupts typically. But notice, Jesus, the one who has all power, who has all authority, God Himself, He never grasped His deity as something to exploit for His own advantage, but He only used it for the good of His creation. And how did He do that? But He emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And notice, let me make this, time's going, let me make this very simple. Notice, he did not empty empty himself of something. He emptied himself. In other words, it's saying he took his deity and he poured it into a human form. He poured it into human flesh. He truly became the God-man. All of God, all of man. Unique being. That's what that's saying. It's saying, although he was God, he wouldn't use his deity as a thing to be exploited for his own good, but instead he took his deity and he literally poured it into human flesh. And for what purpose? To become a bondservant. To who? To his creation. To you and I, the slave of men. He said, Remember, he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many and being made in the likeness of men. And, folks, very, very quickly, what does this mean on practical terms? Is that we're to empty our lives into one another, we're to embrace one another as Jesus embraced us. And, 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 and just five quick ways we're to do that. And this puts it in where the rubber meets the road. Number one, we are to embrace one another with unconditional acceptance. Which gives, give, which gives a feeling of security within the body of Christ. When I can know that I don't have to wear a mask, that I can be real, including with my failures, And I'm not going to be blown away, but I'm going to be loved, I'm going to be encouraged, I'm going to be ministered to. That creates that atmosphere where unity can be promoted. So we are to embrace one another because what? Jesus accepted us unconditionally. Are you perfect? No, but he loves you, he loves you with a love that will never fail you, a love that will never let you go And he says, as I loved you, you're to love one another. But also we're to embrace one another with appreciation, which provides feelings of worth. And again, what we do in the body of Christ, we shouldn't do it to get stroked by others. But on the other hand, let's be honest, we need to be tender and sensitive to one another. And we do need to be quick to express appreciation, to express thanksgiving for one another, which... Give sense of of worth, give sense of value, that I'm important to this church family. They do love me. They do care. And then how about a third one? Embrace one another with, with availability, which provides feelings of importance. See, you make yourself available to those who are important to you. And if we're truly important to one another, then we make ourselves available to one another. We're willing to be interrupted by one another when need be. And matter of fact, if you want an interesting study, just take one of the gospels and read through them and see how much of Jesus' ministry was an interruption. Not some planned event. That he's just suddenly interrupted in the midst of what he was doing. And then fourth, embrace one another with affection, which provides feelings of being loved. I'm talking about developing an atmosphere of, of, of warmth. See, we, we often talk about Christianity is all about believing certain truths. And it is. It is. We can never compromise that. But it's not only about believing truths. It's about a sense of belonging. Belonging to one another. Belonging to a family. Knowing that intimacy, that closeness, that warmth with one another. And then the final one, let me mention. And this is a, sets a good balance. Embrace one another with accountability. Yes, accountable. We're to hold one another accountable in the family, which produces feelings of responsibility. See, I'm not going to allow you to be a victim. Maybe you have been victimized, but if you have the Savior, folks, He's going to give you grace to overcome and go forward. And so, yes, we love one another unconditionally. We accept one another unconditionally, even when there's tremendous failure. And we embrace that brother, to encourage that brother, build them up. But for the purpose of what? Restoring them and getting them back to the place where they are walking with God, where they are promoting the gospel, advancing the gospel, and not bringing reproach to the gospel because of their life. Look at the fifth as I close. The mind of Christ is loving one another with the heart of Christ. Loving one another with the heart of Christ. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And again, the two key phrases that this entire passage builds around is he emptied himself and he humbled himself. Notice, again, deliberate decisions that ran contrary initially to his feelings. But because of his love for you, because he regarded you more important than himself. Because he was looking out for your interest, not his own interest. Because he refused to use his deity for his advantage, but he wanted to use it for yours. He emptied himself and he humbled himself to the point of what? Becoming obedient to the point of what? Death. And notice we're back to that issue of obedience. He humbled himself by being obedient. He said, Father, I do this to honor you. I do this out of my allegiance, out of my love for you. I go to the cross. And that's how we love one another, even when it's difficult. I don't look at that person. I look at God and I say, you're worthy of my obedience, even as Jesus went to the cross obediently for me. Even as he bore that cross, I'm willing to bear this cross in this relationship. Now, folks, as I close, how do we love like that? Goodness gracious. I think we would all admit that's a supernatural type of love. And it is a supernatural type of love. But, you know, I really think the key is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. And let me just close with this. This is how it it reads. It says, love, God's kind of love, it bears all things. It bears up under all adversity, all, all difficult people. And it doesn't only bear up, but it says it believes in all things. And as it believes all things, it hopes in all things. And because it hopes in all things, it endures. And that's why it says, love, God's kind of love, never fails. Not that His love succeeds in winning every person. I mean, the crowd crucified Him. It was only a small minority that embraced Jesus. And Jesus even says today, the road that leads to destruction is what? Broad, and many follow it. The road that leads to eternal life is what? Narrow, and few find it. So when he says his love never fails, it doesn't mean it succeeds in winning every person. It just simply means you can't stop him from loving you. No matter what you do to him, you can spin in his face. You can nail him on a cross, and he's going to still love you. Well, what enables us to love like that? What gives love the ability to bear up under the most horrendous of circumstances, with the most difficult of individuals, and the next phrase, love believes? In other words, I don't put my confidence in my willingness and my ability. I take my focus and put it on what? Jesus and his willingness, his ability. And as I keep my focus on him, confident in his grace, what's the next phrase? Love what? Hopes. See, as long as I keep my focus on Jesus in the most difficult of circumstances, with the most difficult of individuals, I'm never without hope. I'm never without hope when I keep God in the equation. And if I'm never without hope, what's the next phrase? Endure. I can endure one more step. I can endure reaching out to this person one more time. I can endure extending forgiveness even when I've been wronged, even when I've been hurt, or whatever the case might be. And that's why love never fails. But the key is what? Confidence in God. Faith in God. We do all that we do as an expression of honor, as an expression of love, as an expression of love. If we focus here, it ain't going to happen. We focus there. And it's in that relationship we find the grace and the strength then to embrace one another as we talked about. Amen? So just a beautiful, beautiful, practical lesson. And that's how Paul uh, wrote Philippians 2. It wasn't a theological treaty on on Christ's incarnation although it is that but it's in the context of us relating to one another and knowing unity in the body of Christ as we extend the invitation if you're here this morning and uh, you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ well you've heard the truth this morning through the observance of the Lord's uh, table how Jesus uh, took your sins, how your sins were laid on him, and he took the punishment you deserved, and he rose again, and he's alive, and he's offering you new life through a relationship with him. If you would merely open up your heart, invite him in to forgive you of your sins and take control of your life. Or possibly you've been visiting and you've been looking for a church home and God's leading you to unite here. Well, we would invite you to come forward. So I'll be standing to greet anyone that has a decision of, of any nature, but I trust... Uh, All of us will respond to the truth. I trust God has spoken, and so how are you going to respond to what you've heard today to leave this place and to live out that truth? Amen? Stand with me as the invitation is extended.